Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 9 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. For this episode, we were joined by Joe Donoghue. Joe is, of course, the voice of Scouted Football and with him we looked at some of the exciting young players to watch out for in the second half of the season and also some developing storylines to watch out for in the second half of the season across the four leagues we predominantly cover. So, for example, we looked at Suswallow's post-Skamaka struggles, Matthias Tell's upward career trajectory, Villarreal's dexterous starlet, Will Still's managerial odyssey, Giorgio Scalvini's aggressive playing style and so much more in our usual detailed way. As always, I would direct you to the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when during the episode. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. You find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast, our first fortnightly episode focusing on domestic European football since before the World Cup. Of course, thank you to those of you who tuned in to our World Cup weekly bonus episodes. It feels like it's been quite some time since we last looked at domestic action and to mark the occasion, to mark the return to such discussions, I'm delighted to be joined by the excellent Joe Donoghue. Joe is, of course, the voice of Scouted Football. We've spoken to Joe several times, both on this podcast and on Joe's Scouted Football podcast. So, Joe, it's great to have you along. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing a hell of a lot better now that I've had that introduction to uh, <laughs> to serenade me with. But um, no, I'm, I'm good, Ali. How are you getting on? Yeah, really well, really well. We were just saying before we came on air that my voice is suffering slightly after a heartbreaking Saturday evening. I was at Hamden to see Kilmarnock lose narrowly to Celtic. We won't talk about the much discussed, much debated potential penalty, which wasn't a penalty, which wasn't given. Uh, so a combination of, of that game, a thoroughly enjoyable day out, a combination of that and Monday night fives as a rather vocal goalkeeper has uh, yeah, left, left my voice in a slightly difficult place. But hopefully it will hold out for this episode, at least. We will be joined by Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones in due course. We'll, of course, look at developments in Spain. We'll look at developments in Italy. What we're actually going to do in this episode is, over the four weeks that we predominantly cover, we're going to highlight a young player to watch out for in the second half of the season for each of those four leagues. And we're going to highlight a developing narrative, a developing storyline to watch out for across the second half of the season in each of those leagues. But in the meantime, whilst we wait on Barlow and Michael to join us, Joe, I think it makes sense for us to have a little chat about things going on in the Bundesliga. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I think it's probably a, a good place to begin um, with with Freiburg, who, you know, 15 games into the 22-23 Bundesliga season, um, Christian Strike side a, a second, um, just four points behind perennial league leaders Bayern Munich. Um, and, you know, last season, I think many people will have followed Freiburg's story, um, at Champions League spots sort of slipping through their fingers um, when they were looking for the vast majority of the season uh, that, that they might actually go and sort of topple the hegemony of of sort of your, your Bayerns and, and your Dortmunds in that top two. But, um, you know, losing twice in the, in the last two league games, it just kind of slipped agonisingly through the fingers. Um, but, you know, 19 games still to be played this season. We're not even at the halfway point of the Bundesliga campaign. Um, Ali, I mean, I'll ask the question of you. How how would we rate Freiburg's chances of, of, of 
sort of ending that hoodoo and, and securing a place in the Champions League this time? Yeah, I think the optimist in me, Joe, says that I'd rate those chances quite highly. Uh, interestingly enough, this time last season, they were in fifth place, eight points off of second place. So I suppose in that regard, they have a head start of sorts, which may well make a difference. But in any event, I do worry that the psychological trauma inflicted by that painful end to last season might weigh heavy on the minds of the Freiburg players the closer we get to the business end of the campaign. And let's not forget as well that heartbreaking defeat on penalties in the DFB Cup final against Leipzig in May. Nevertheless, they, they have bounced back from those setbacks, if we can even call them setbacks, and, and they've made a quite superb start to the current campaign. And without wanting to sound too patronising, and I think sometimes when people speak about Freiburg, they do run the risk of, of sounding patronising, uh, because well, it's a wonderful story. They're still an incredibly well-run club. I, I think, yeah, for Freiburg to be up at the top end of the table, once again challenging the heavyweights of German football, yeah, that in itself is a remarkable achievement. We've once again seen formational and tactical versatility from Christian Streich, who has lined his side up in a 4-2-3-1, a 4-4-2, a 3-4-3 and a 3-5-2 at various points this season. And I think any podcast, any article you, you read about Freiburg will mention that sort of fine-tuned flexibility and willingness to adapt. And yeah, it has absolutely been a hallmark of Christian Strike's Freiburg over the years. And for the most part, it works rather well for the side from the Black Forest. I think sometimes you can run the risk of, of being too flexible to, to the point of incoherence. But I think Strike definitely gets it right and his players seem to understand it as well. Now, Freiburg did, of course, kick off the season with a 4-0 win at Augsburg. And I think that was them announcing that, yeah, do you know what? Maybe maybe we were disappointed with how things finished last time out, but we're not feeling sorry for ourselves. We are back. We mean business. I think that was a really statement victory, um, for one way to put it. And although they, of course, lost at home to Dortmund just after that, that was merely a, a setback, a very small setback, because... Let's not forget that by match day five, they were top of the table and that was only the second time in their history that they'd managed to do that. And yeah, they, they'd amassed a record amount of points after that uh, period in a season. In terms of, I think, Joe, we need to mention Freiburg's recruitment. Uh, over the last season in particular, it's been particularly impressive. And I think probably the best way to describe it is that it is not flashy, but it's very sensible and it works. I think the TIFO series, Sensible Transfers, uh, it's almost as if, if Freiburg had one of those made for them. It may or may not be one of those videos for Freiburg, but it's almost as if Freiburg would, would follow that to a T. And, and this summer in particular, they brought in Matthias Ginter and Mikael Gregorich on free transfers as well, signing Ritz Doan for under 10 million euros from the, the Dutch leagues. Uh, and Ginter, Gregorich and Doan have all played key roles in the first half of the season or so, and you would imagine that they would continue to do so from now until May. And I think those three players are really reflective of the common sense and the pragmatism with which Freiburg approach their recruitment. Just focusing as well on Gregorich and Doan, they, of course, have complemented the attacking exploits of 29-year-old Italian forward Vincenzo Grifo. Grifo has excelled, and I'm really happy to say that he has excelled for Freiburg this season because he was always a player who I found quite likeable, but I felt like he was never quite at the level to go on and have a really, really good season for a club like Freiburg, a club competing at the top end of the Bundesliga, and he's already actually equaled his best top flights goal haul for a single Bundesliga campaign. He's registered nine goals so far, and just as a little... Aside, um, listeners will know that I love a little tidbit of information like this, but when he converted a penalty in a 2 win against Werder Bremen back in October, so before the World Cup, seems like another lifetime ago now, he actually overtook his hero, Luca Toni, as the highest scoring Italian international in the Bundesliga. So a nice little story there. Let's also focus on the fact that Grifo scored the hat-trick in Freiburg's final game before the World Cup, which, of course, saw Freiburg thump fellow high flyers, if you like, Union Berlin 4-1 at the Europa Park Stadion. And I think that was as good a note as any for Freiburg to to end on before the World Cup. And it sets them up nicely going into this post-World Cup period. Looking ahead, their expected goal difference actually places them in fifth place, but they do boast the 
second meanest defence in the league and they haven't lost at home in any competition since mid-August, that being that game against Dortmund that I referenced earlier. Now, their three league losses have come against Dortmund, Bayern and Leipzig and so in their 12 other games they've picked up 30 points from a possible 36. So I think if they can keep up that consistency against the so-called best of the rest, if you like, and perhaps pick up a point or four in the next round of fixtures against Bayern, Dortmund and Leipzig, then they would surely find themselves there or thereabouts in the race for Champions League football, to answer your question, Joe. The midweek tie against fourth place Frankfurt at the end of January will perhaps give us an indication of sorts of how they will fare across the rest of the season. But yeah, absolutely, I would say to the listeners, do keep an eye out for how that particular match Unfold. Joe, I'll come to you briefly before we move on to the next kind of topic of conversation. Do you have anything to add when it comes to Freiburg? And I suppose, well, I was going to say fairy tale, but it's not really a fairy tale, just their prolonged period of success. Yeah, I think just adding to your point about the 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 team having the second meanest defence in the league, I think it speaks to Christian Strike's coaching ability that they've lost at least one of the Schlotterbecks. Um uh, Nico Schlotterbeck in the summer, uh, who was ostensibly their, their best defender last season um, and probably the standout player from that team that, that narrowly missed out on the Champions League. Um, and yet they've managed to, to you know, launch an assault on, on the Bundesliga table even more so with, with again, some really good recruitment. I think um, Kylian Dilsilia, uh, Sildilia, sorry, a uh, bit of a tongue twister that one, um, him coming into the team you know me I'll I'll always sort of look at for the the under 23 angle but mm-hmm. um him playing at the back and and maybe sometimes in that second line um he's been he's been very impressive uh, in the sort of the, the the bits that I've I've been able to catch um here and there um and I think they've it, it they they've managed to absorb the responsibility that that Schlotterbeck took on last season and spread it around the team um which I mean, it's the sign of a good coach because it shows that he's problem solving and he hasn't really, as you say, he hasn't used the transfer market in a flashy sense. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd, that's that's really all I'd I'd have to add onto onto your your little monologue about Freiburg and and I'd echo what what you said. You know, they are going to be a team to watch and see if they can they can keep up the the momentum. Absolutely, Joe. And just one last point to add uh, with regards to the stadium, still relatively new stadium, the Europa Park Stadion. I think there was a degree of concern certainly among some fans that moving away from the iconic Schwarzwald Stadion to this newer stadium that that would maybe have had some sort of an impact if not on the team but certainly on the match day experience perhaps the match day atmosphere because the atmosphere was only ever lucky enough to go to the Schwarzwald Stadion on one occasion and the atmosphere there was was phenomenal I think there was this concern that that maybe wouldn't translate when they moved to or transfer over to the new stadium, but certainly from from what I've heard, spoken to a good friend of mine who's been across two or three times at least, and he yeah he's confirmed that the atmosphere there and the match day experience is every bit as enjoyable as it was at the iconic Schwarzwald Stadion. Okay, I think we'll wrap up our discussion on Freiburg there, and we'll turn our attention to a young forward who goes by the name of Matthias Tell, who has been yeah really getting people talking. Tell, of course, plays for Bayern Munich, having signed from Rennes in Vigan. He was born April 27th, 2005. Oh. Not nice, is it? <laughs> Not nice to hear that. Uh, yeah, so he was born, yeah, born <laughs> in 2005. He's a 17-year-old. Joe, what can you tell us about Matthias Tell? What a player, what a talent he is. Yeah, I mean, first became aware of Matthias Tell at, at the under-17 Euros uh, last summer, uh, where he was the the captain and the standout for for France as they went to went on to win that. Um, you know, a Rennes Academy product. I mean, when when when, when you're talking about youth football in France, you are going to be talking about a Rennes Academy product at some point. Um, you know, but as 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 joined by Munich last summer in a 20 million euro move and. There might be a suggestion that oh it's it's too big of a leap too soon, but I think there are a few reasons which I'll sort of get onto as to why that that isn't quite the case. Um, but just going back to that under 17s Euros performance uh, with France, you know he, he led the line, he held up play, linked well with his teammates, um, stretched defensive lines, you know dropped off, drifted wide. He was impactful in the penalty area. You know he was he was a composite number nine. He was a, a complete striker. Um, and obviously the caveat being it's against under 17 defenses, but you look at the the confidence, he's just literally oozing with confidence at that tournament, um, taking shots on from standing starts at the edge of the box and finding the top corner. 
Um, I think there was even one occasion where he tried a bicycle kick first time from a deep cross and, you know, Cruyff turns at the byline to, to try and beat pressure. You know, he was somebody who was very, very captivating. Um, he d- I hate to use the term because sometimes it's a bit, uh, sometimes it's misattributed, but he definitely had sort of the X factor. And and when you're watching youth international tournaments, there will sometimes be one or two players throughout the entire tournament where you go, right, that he is, he is the, you know, the real deal. Um, but him joining Bayern in the summer, um, you know, it, it's not, it's not really a clear-cut example of a young player making that jump too high too soon. You know, at face value, you could look at it as 17-year-old who hasn't really played an awful lot for Ren, who is joining one of the biggest clubs in Europe with, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches and, and resources in attack. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But, you know, he, he is an extraordinary talent. There's no getting around it. Um, and even still at 17, um, you know, that's probably the most important thing that I have to say. But... You know, Bayern obviously rate him quite highly. They've sold him this 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 dream that he's going to be a first team player, and they've they've doubled down on that. They've they've made good on that promise. Um, you know, he's he's contributed pretty much straight away. Um, in the Bundesliga this year, obviously not from the start. I think he's only made two starts in all comps. But you know, he's coming off the bench for 25, 30 minutes stints quite regularly. Um, and as well as that, you know, at seventeen. And with the the pathway at Ren, it wasn't as though he was sort of by joining Bayern. It's not as though he was giving up like fifteen hundred, two thousand minutes at Ren this season. Um, you know, he's still getting a decent amount of of time on the pitch. Um, so essentially, you have to ask yourself. Well, he will have asked himself the question in the summer: Why not develop in an elite environment? You know, I mean, I'm not saying that Ren isn't, but I'm you know the the level at Bayern will just be that little notch higher. Um, I mean. Just rattling off sort of some of the accolades, 17 years and 126 days became the youngest player to score for Bayern in a competitive game against Victoria Cohn in the Cup. Um, and I mentioned he's only started two games, but he scored in both of them. And he has four goals in 12 appearances, which comes to around, you know, 200, 300 minutes. So, you know, he is somebody who, I mean, fans of youth football will will certainly know about him. Fans of European football will begin to hear about him more and more and more as he continues to develop. Um, and just one final point about why it's maybe not a too too much too soon type of move is that he hasn't featured at all in the UEFA Youth League for the under-19s, despite being a 17-year-old. You know, you've had other players like Paul Vanna and Ariane Ibrahimovic playing in those those games, but Tell has not. He is a bona fide first team player in this this squad, and at seventeen for one of the best teams in in the world, you know it's not it's not a bad um, it's not a bad going. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And I'm just going to add, I've not got too much more to add, but there was a quote which I thought was was quite relevant actually from Bruno Genesio, who of course brought Tell into the first team at Rennes. Um, and Genesio said he's a player who, for a start, is significantly more mature than the average for his age. His athletic qualities are also above the norm, but it's not only that. His technical ability and his game intelligence struck me. And I know that you can say, well, most young players get a chance at Rennes, but I think they get a chance at Rennes because they're good enough and they regularly evidence the fact that they are good enough. I think there's there's almost at Rennes when it comes to young players, and not just young players, but very young players, players who are barely even 16, there's almost this benign sense of entitlement. You know, sometimes that sense of entitlement can, well, more often than not, it's going to be negative. It's going to act as a hindrance to somebody, uh, no matter, you know, what that person does, whether it be a football player or some other occupation. But I think at Ryan, there's almost this benign sense of entitlement that, you know, they know that they're good enough without being too arrogant. They know they're going to get a chance they almost feel entitled to a chance in a benign way. And I think that is really positive because when they then get the chance on the part, they don't have this sense of imposter syndrome, which I don't know, maybe maybe I'm overthinking this, but I think some players, maybe they do feel a little bit like, oh my goodness gracious me, I'm extremely young and I'm playing with all these superstars. I don't get that impression with the likes of Matthias Tell and other players who've come through. I'm thinking of Camavinga as well. I know that he maybe struggled for Real Madrid the other night there in the Super Cup. But overall, I think... When you look at some of the talents coming through Ren, and I know that we've gone slightly off the, the kind of path that we were on there, Joe, but when you look at those players coming through, Tell included, there is this sort of almost benign sense of entitlement. And 
Intel's instance, it's definitely going to benefit him because he needs to feel confident enough. He needs to, yeah, kind of stick his head above above the proverbial parapet and and yeah, really go for it. And he's been given the minutes. He's he's been uh, given given ample opportunity to show what he can do. And I think we're only going to see him get more such opportunities. Okay, well. That was an extremely interesting discussion on both Freiburg and Matthias Tell. Definitely, in Tell's instance, a player that we should watch out for as the Bundesliga season develops. Uh, I think we'll take a quick break now. I need to go and grab a drink of water to soothe my throat. And yeah, we're going to dial in Rudy Barlow, who'll join us from a Madrienio cafe. Do brace yourself for the ambiance because that's one way to put it. It's quite, quite the atmosphere in the background. We'll be back shortly. Of last season, we did an episode focusing on some of the more exciting young talents in each of our leagues. And Barlow, you of course picked Villarreal forward Jeremy Pino as your one to watch in La Liga now, Pino has been inconsistent this season, but part of the reason for that is the intense competition for minutes. The yellow submarine are blessed to have another young gem. If he carries on, as is, you reckon he might even be in the Spain squad by the next Euros too, Barlow and we are talking here about Alex Baena, who was born in 2001 and is an attacking midfielder. I'll pass over to Barlow now, who joins us from a rather noisy Madrileño cafe. So, adding to the ambience, really, Barlow, take it away. Yeah, apologies for the noise here, boys and listeners and girls and everyone else who's, who's in this cafe and, uh, yes, just everyone. Uh, but Alex Baena, yes, I've kind of felt a wee bit bad about picking another Villarreal player this section because I was like, I've, I've already chosen Pino and you like to mix it up a bit to make it a bit different. But you did ask the question, Alec, who is the most exciting young player for this kind of second half of the season? And the one that excites me the most is Alex Baena because I think I was trying to work out what kind of player he is. I was trying to work out the the style, the sort of uh, box that we can put him in, but sort of kind of think that he can do everything you want in the final third. He's clinical, he's, he's good finishing, he's good at sliding down that killer pass, he can sort of reverse the ball in behind the defence, he's got good appreciation of movement, he knows exactly when to arrive in the box. So yeah, this is this is a player that I really like. He's sort of, he's played off the left for the majority of his career, kind of coming into the senior side, but on the whole, can kind of play anywhere in behind that striker role, and even at times has, has been a false nine under Unai Emery. So, so yeah, he kind of came into the side... He was in the Europa League squads a lot last season, but he's more and more developed into what is now a sort of almost starting start under Hike Setien. Unai Emery really liked him, but we know Unai Emery doesn't like to start too many attackers in one go, and we have quite a lot of them. So, so yeah, under Kike Setien, I expect to see him a bit more. Kike Setien's actually kind of brought him a little bit back. He's playing him in central midfield in recent weeks, and uh, and yeah, I just I love what a versatile sort of complete footballer we've got even though he's only kind of 21. So, so yeah, just going into his stats a wee bit, I mean, I think we all like to use FB ref here. We're going to have a lot of FB ref in this episode. I'm going to predict that. But uh, in terms of expected assists for 90, he's in the top 10. He's sitting ninth in La Liga. He's overperforming his XG by 2.5. Only Bryce Mendes, who's the top scoring midfielder in La Liga, Lewandowski and Gorka Guruteta are ahead of him in that respect, which is pretty good going. And he's third in La Liga for three balls. It's only Petri and Usman Dembele ahead of him there. Across this season, 10 goals, four assists in 25 games, and that comes in 15 starts. So we're talking about a player that, so far this season, is almost kind of guaranteeing you a goal every kind of start, more or less. And uh, and if, if you want to go and watch highlights of him, sometimes these players that we're recommending don't necessarily lend themselves to highlights because they might be sort of depends on where they're playing, but Alex Bayern is, is one that you can go on YouTube and really enjoy because some of the goals he scores, particularly everyone enjoys someone that can strike a volley sweetly, and Alex Bayern absolutely has that. So yeah, if you're wanting to follow a young player for, for the rest of this season, I would go and watch Villarreal in general, but I'd go and watch Alex Bayern in particular. And I know, Joe, you're a fan, and uh, hopefully uh, you've got a quieter background for me to deal with. I was going to say there, Ruri. I'm not. At, uh, I'm not uh, able to, to offer the the ambiance of a sort of Madrileño cafe. But um, 
yeah, I suppose my uh, my my sort of office slash bedroom will have to will have to do. But um, with with Alex Bainia, um, he was in terms of the players we've discussed this evening. You know, he's, he's the one that I'd know that or knew the least about. Um, but I was sort of aware of the name. Um, and then sort of getting to getting down to to watching him and and sort of trying to develop in my own head sort of what his what his playing profile is. You know, he, he comes across as this very dexterous, tricky winger. Um, you know, maybe not the most secure in possession, but I suppose. There's there's a there's an endearing quality to players who are high risk high reward, um, and I think Bayana definitely fits the bill there. Um, I think as well when you're playing in a team like uh, Villarreal, you, you know, with with the what the role will command obviously with Setien is you know um, endeavouring, you know, um, attacking, um, you know, this the style of play which is going to be very easy on the eye, but. Is actually very difficult to execute because it has to be daring at times, um, and I think for a player who can't just bludgeon their way through defenses and through lines, it's it, it's it's a lot more, well, maybe not a lot more, but it, it, it you can definitely see the merits of a player who you know can have even greater dexterity and and, and control of their body um, in trying to to find those passes, the through balls, especially for for someone like Bayanya. Um and I mean, you know, you only have to look at his output. I mean, those those FBUF stats that that you ruled off there, Barlow. Um, you know, the, the they they speak for themselves, don't they? I mean, you know, he's he's trying things, and I think there's always you can always kind of justify a player trying things when they do come off a reasonable amount of the time. It's when it's when they're only doing it one in every ten games when it starts to get a bit jarring. But when he's producing, essentially, as you say every start or, or roughly every start um, then you know there's not really that much you can argue with Absolutely an exciting player for us to watch as the Liga heads into the second half of the season and Villarreal in particular under Kiki City and definitely an intriguing watch on the whole Okay looking elsewhere looking more generally at a narrative a developing storyline to watch out for in the second half of the season. This season marks the 10th campaign since Real Sociedad were last in the Champions League. In the meantime, they have never dropped below 12th place, often challenging for the Europa League over that time, but falling just short of club football's holy grail. There is growing belief, however, that their intelligent management and scouting may finally get the most consistent side in the Liga over the hump, even when faced with significant adversity. Tell us why, Barlow, starting with a significant victory in the Bas Derby last weekend. Yeah, it was a really big atmosphere at the Reale Arena and San Sebastian, I think, is one of those places that has to be on everyone's bucket list. Not just because of the football. The football is now very good. But the food is great. The atmosphere is great. It's a lovely, lovely place to go. So go and visit La Real, especially while they're good. Um, but yeah, they beat Athletic Club 3-1 and I think what's what's defining about this L'Areal side is that in theory they're one of the sort of nice pretty sides that passes the ball around and sort of keeps possession well and it sort of creates these lovely passing lines and they do do all those things but what we, we're starting to see I think a bit more of is a side that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people like physical brute force. Mikel Marino is is a bit of a monster and I think that kind of comes out a bit more in La Liga than it would in the Premier League necessarily where he kind of learned his trade a wee bit in terms of physicality and, and battling in the Premier League and he's kind of referenced that but but yeah this is a team that has big physical players like Alexander Surlot up front is a bit of a warrior Mikel Marino as I was saying and then you've got that kind of Basque sort of hard man aspect to the back line as well so there's a lot of sort of different facets to this uh, Real Sociedad side and the fact that they beat Athletic Club, and I think they were the better side than Athletic Club, but they weren't intimidated at all by this, by Athletic, who are the epitome of the Basqueness and the epitome of that sort of hard man, really sort of up in your face, uh, kind of fast paced style of football that we're, yeah, maybe more accustomed to in England, but it, it's sort of, yeah, they are the sort of um, purveyors of that in Spain. And so they, they went toe to toe with them, they kind of squared up to them in, this, in essence said we're going to match you there and in terms of football we're better than you and so yeah I think this is a really exciting team because it has different sides to it you have the likes of Take Kubo who's, who's really blossoming into the player that we maybe thought that he was going to be two three years ago when he came back to Spain 
He's really had a couple of tricky years. He's had his attitude questions. We've kind of spoken about him a wee bit on here as well. But now we're starting to see that player that we thought we'd get. He's got the running. He's got the attitude. He's got that aggression and bite. He's also got that technical ability. And almost every game, you'll see him do something that will kind of get you off your seat or, or kind of, yeah, get you into the game, make you sit forward because he's got a lot of talent. And Bryce Mendes, who I mentioned earlier, top scoring midfielder in Spain that takes some goal and he, he's really sort of come through for them. And that kind of win percentage that they've got right now, I think it's up about 60, 70%. It's the best in their history currently. So if they carry on this pace, they will get more points than they've ever had. And they're doing this all without their captain, Miguel Oyotaba, who until the last couple of weeks came back up the World Cup, has been out injured with an ACL. They're doing it all without their star striker from last season, Alexander Isak, who obviously moved to Newcastle. And they're doing it without his replacement, Umar Sadiq, who tore his ACL after two games for Real. So this is a guy, who, this is a team who, who were robbed of kind of their, their main attacking assets, but they're still the joint third best offense offense that was very American of me and um, they're still the joint best attack in La Liga a lot just after Real Madrid and Barcelona so so yeah we're, they don't play any of the top eight until March I looked at apart from Real Madrid this is a week Real Madrid they played them two weeks time so they have a real opportunity here to put together five six seven wins out of those eight games and they could be long gone in the top four by the time it gets to kind of March well time it gets to kind of April May and even though I, I think it's really hard to judge this season because we the, the, that delay and the sort of normal sort of time markers that we kind of mark in our head for saying this team's got a chance of doing this, this team's got a chance of doing that, that's that kind of it's skewed a little bit. But if Real Sociedad can get through this next kind of five six games with almost maximum points, then I think yeah they've got the best chance that they'll have at the top four and. If we want to give them kind of a moniker, this is the best-run club in Spain for my money. Sixth, fifth, sixth. They've won a Copa del Rey, qualified for Europe in each of the last three seasons. This is a club that's doing pretty much everything they can, and uh, I think it'd only be just rewards if they ended up at the top four at the end of the season. But, but yeah, I'll pass pass it on to Joe and uh, give our our listeners here another rest from the uh, the racket back here in Madrid. I mean, they might they might think that my 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 dulcet tones are a bit of a racket as well, Barlow. But um, no, I think with with Sociedad, uh, well, rather with La Real, uh, as I uh, as I should uh, refer to them, um, you know, it's just Mikel Marino, as you say. I mean, he is a player that I've I've, I've had a, a very very large soft spot for 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 quite some time. Um, I think him finally maybe getting the recognition that he that he deserves at international level uh, and certainly outside of Spain. Um, I think that would go hand in hand with with uh, Real Sociedad qualifying for the Champions League, and as you say, you know, finishing those those seasons fifth, sixth, fifth, and essentially just just being that that one place, just not close enough to to get into the to, into the top four. I think now averaging roughly over two points a game in La Liga this season, um, it is the, the and and as you say, with the likes of Oyarzabal and 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 uh, to to come back and 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 Umar Sadiq as well. He was just a fascinating player in terms of his 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 his, his journey and his physical profile and everything about him. Um, but I, again, to be doing it without Alex Isak as well, um, you know, they've they've really really done. I, I I don't want to say worked wonders because that's it's I don't know. I, I want to credit them where credit's due. Wonders makes it sound as though it's a, a bit fortunate, but no, I think this is a culmination of um, one of the best teams in Spain ultimately now getting their just desserts and um i watched uh la real uh, last month um when they came to play leeds in a mid-season friendly um and on the night i wasn't overly impressed by them but you could see the technical quality was there um they they were always constantly trying to, to get the ball down and play um and you felt as though they were playing at about 60 70 percent so i imagine at full tilt you know that like, like they have been this season they've been a, a real joy to watch and um, well, yeah, we'll have to, to wait and see and, and keep an eye on them for the rest of the rest of the season. Absolutely, and I'm just while you guys have been talking there, I've looked at some pictures of San Sebastian. The coast looks absolutely gorgeous. So potentially, we could try and try and tie in a little road to nowhere road trip to San Sebastian and take in a game watching La Real Barlow. If you could sort that out, what with your 
your new locations and all that jazz, then then yeah, I would I would absolutely be keen for that one. Regardless, definitely a team to watch out for La Real as we head into the second half of the season in Spain's top flight. Okay, dokie. Well, I'll say thank you to you, Rudy Paolo. I'll let you head off. I know that you've got an important other arrangement this evening. So thank you for your time. Thank you for bringing us the ambience of the Santa Barbara Cafe in Madrid. I've looked up on Google Maps, as you know I like to do, Paolo. I'm obsessed with Google Maps, am I? And yeah, it looks lovely. Really liking the, the decor there as well. So enjoy your evening, Paolo. Thanks again. And we'll take a quick break ourselves. Joe and I will be back. Very briefly, we're going to speak to Michael and some. we're going to discuss some talents and some storylines in Serie A. We'll be right back. Under the guidance of Gian Piero Gasparini, Atalanta were defined rather uncharacteristically by their defensive resilience this season prior to the World Cup break. One of the reasons for that was the form of their teenage centre-back, Giorgio Scalvini, who turned 19 just last month. At the other end of the park, the young defender was on the score sheet as Ladea returned to their free-flowing best at the weekend, annihilating Salernitana 8-2. With an iconic generation of Italian defenders reaching the twilight of their careers. Could Scalvini perhaps be the best of the next generation, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the initial player people will always come to is Alessandro Bastoni, who has been a star for Inter Milan when they won Serie A a couple of years ago now, and ever since as well. But Giorgio Scalvini, both centre-backs, there's a lot of similarities between them apart from Bastoni being left-footed and Scalvini being right-footed. But both have come through the Atalanta famed academy that's produced so many really good players over the last few years. And Scalvini's step up to the first team has been effortless, really, and that sort of characterises, I think, a lot of his play on the ball. He is a really elegant centre-back to watch. He's sort of that comfortable on the ball that a team like Atalanta, okay, they were defined by their sturdiness um, and stodginess sort of in the first half of the season. I think they only conceded three goals in their first eight league games. But since he's also, during that period, he's also been uh, playing in sort of a defensive midfield role at times for Atalanta, but certainly in the position where he seems to have been playing most as both as a youth player and at academy level seems to be centre-back and he was a really key figure for them actually when they won the Primavera Supercoppa um, which is kind of like when the league comes together for a big final against Fiorentina managed by uh, Aquilani if people remember him the ex-Liverpool player but yeah, since then, he made his debut in the autumn of the last season. And by the end of the last season, he received his first call-up for the Italy national team, playing against Germany in the Nations League. And obviously, I think I would have expected him to be in and around the World Cup squad had Italy qualified um, this November. And I think that could have even brought him to sort of a sort of quicker prominence on an international stage but in Italy for sure people are really noticing him and people have been documenting about him sort of very from a very young age sort of to the extent about when he first started making pre-season appearances for Ladea and even Gasparini who oversaw the development of Bastoni into the first team although he only got three senior league appearances out of Bastoni during his time he's managed to enjoy already a lot more out of Scalvini, but he said that Scalvini was like Bastoni, but the you know, the only difference being he thought was a right foot. But I think I think Scalvini has the kind of dominating he's I would say he maybe comes across a bit more aggressive than Bastoni and maybe that could be something that may be seen as a potential flaw um going forwards in terms of rush tackles and whatnot. But in terms of his sort of the scouting report on FB ref, he also scores so highly, 99% compared to, um, you know, players in top five leagues over the past year for uh, non-penalty goals, shots uh, in total. 
Um, a touch it. Touches in the attacking penalty area, and he's right up there for tackles, interceptions, also 94th and 96th percentiles. So this is a player whose sort of all-round game is just brilliant. And yeah, just kind of coming to you, Joe, I was just wondering sort of how highly you rate him and sort of maybe where you see his future and whether you think he might stay at Atalanta even, you know, for quite a bit longer. Yeah, and to, just to go back to your point about him being maybe a bit more aggressive than Bastoni, that's kind of the the thing that always stands out to me about Scalvini, or rather has certainly this season. You know, for for such, I mean, he is such a physically dominant defender, um, and you know the the aggression that he brings to the game um, is is so is so useful. He puts it to good use for a player who's still only nineteen. Um, you know, I mean, it helps that he's six foot three on the sort of the lower side, maybe maybe even six foot four. Um, and he's really, really difficult to beat one v one, which, coupled with sort of his youth and his ability to to control his body, that's probably why he's been trialed in in defensive midfield once or twice. Um, but I, I I think you know he's he's much much better as as part of the um, the defensive trio on that left hand side. Um, and as I say, for for such a physically dominant player, um, I do like how much he keeps it simple. You know, he's very comfortable in possession, um, but mostly keep just keeps it on the deck keeps it easy even under pressure just you know pass your way out of trouble nothing fancy nothing switchy nothing long range just find a teammate and let them do the building from the back um which i think probably flies under the radar quite a lot because it's not as as i say it's not flashy um but i mean you know obviously because of that aggression that we're, we're talking about you know he does commit fouls and i'd say there's probably room for him to to use his body a little bit better to draw fouls for himself as well you know you see a lot of defenders go down under you know very weak challenges which i mean the footballing purists in us might say aren't fouls but it is gamesmanship um but i suppose that's the sort of thing that will come um and you know he usually mitigates not having to win fouls because he's not you know, dawdling in possession. He's not keeping hold of the ball for too long. He's usually just passing out of pressure or just taking on his man. You know, you mentioned the, the FB ref stats there. He's, he's, you know, scoring quite highly among his positional um, positional peers in terms of dribbles attempted and completed, which from watching a little bit of Scalvini, a lot of those are coming sort of with one-on-one. So that the attacker sort of, goes to engage him to press and and he kind of just opens his legs with that gait that stride of his and just takes it past him opens up a different angle for the pass into midfield or or to a teammate Um, and I I really like that about central defenders who are able to step up now obviously there is the three at the back tax the centre back tax which is obviously it's it's easier to play in a three at the back when you've it's easier it's easier to be more aggressive it's easier to be more expansive when you've got two central defenders who can back you up um, rather than just the one, and um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, Ali, you were talking about at the beginning there how he he scored against Salernitana, um, but he is a massive threat in in the opposition penalty area, um, picks up really really good spaces, um, and and you know due to his height and his frame, he's always going to be a handful. So when he does begin to fill out a bit more, you know, that's it's it's a it's a really really good prospect, especially for for the Italian national team. Yeah, well, just kind of like finishing on that. I mean, you mentioned his defensive counterpart. He's got Caleb Bacoli, another really young centre-back alongside with him. There were so many young players to choose from, which I think when we did this episode like a year and a half ago, I didn't have anywhere near as many Italian players, the likes of Moretti at Juventus making this. And of course, on your doorstep, Joe, uh, Wilfred Nyonto at Leeds as well. And I just think it's such an exciting time for the Italy national team. Okay, they weren't at the World Cup, but then you do realise in the grand scheme of things, the amount of teams that go out early, that, you know, now there is a real chance to rebuild and to start to create a new generation and legacy, I think. 100%, yeah, definitely some exciting Italian talents coming through. Okay, elsewhere, if the first half of the season were to repeat itself, 17th place... Sassuolo would only need four points between now and the end of May to be mathematically safe in Serie A. And yet, as Salernitana demonstrated last season, anything is possible when it comes to the relegation battle. For a team credited with evolving season upon season, this campaign has so far been a frustrating one for Alessio Dionisi's side who have lost their last four games in a row. 
Michael, just how have Enero Verde become relegation candidates? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that form, which has been what's kind of put them in that position, to put it sort of very bluntly. They've got the joint worst form in Serie A at the moment with bottom side Criminense. So it's really quite bleak times for them at the moment. And I think it's safe to say Alessio Dionisi is certainly under pressure. And I think, you know, he was, he's kind of always, he's always been in a very tricky situation in this job because he has ultimately had to follow in the footsteps of Roberto De Zerbi. And if people didn't rate him as highly as others during his time at Sassuolo, I'm sure they do now with the sort of magical work he's doing with Brighton and Hove Albion, albeit, you know, with the great foundations laid by Graham Potter. But coming back to Sassuolo, it's been a real struggle this year for many reasons. Um, a team that's kind of was associated with sort of free-flowing, similar to Atalanta in the past. Goals have not been... Um, free-flowing by any means this season and I think also that they've also had to go undergo a bit of a transition in the attacking areas and I think that coupled with injuries has made it really difficult for them I think their most high-profile departures were both Gianluca Scamacca to West Ham and Giacomo Raspadori to Napoli Raspadori and Scamacca both not helped by the fact they were both quite late departures in the transfer window as such Raspadori actually did play for Sassuolo in the league this season but in those first 18 games they've only scored 17 goals averaging less than a goal a game whilst they conceded 28. Both are actually worse than what their sort of XG should be for them. Um, their goal difference should only be minus three, according to that, whereas it is actually minus 11. So in some respects, maybe they will start to get a little bit more luck. But some of the defensive stats are just absolutely terrible. I mean, Sassuolo, even at their best, were not a good defensive side. They were a side kind of more renowned for investing a lot more in attacking players. When you've seen the likes of Jeremy Bogger over the years as well, and Dominica Berardi has been there a few years, investing a lot more both in salaries and in terms of price tags on attacking players than they had defensive players. And it hasn't really helped that they're sort of defending from set pieces. It's been something they've not been able to resolve for a long time, has often been so poor. But I think also game management, I think this is quite a young side. There aren't many players sort of on there. Um, I think there's only two or one outfield player in the squad, in Pedro Obiang, who's sort of a regular player. He's over the age of 30 um, Defrel maybe as well but there's him himself hasn't actually featured for them that much and they, they take it they've sort of taken a very standoff approach in the game management in terms of conceding goals late on in halves that Lazio last loss against Lazio typified that they conceded on the brink of half time to go 1-0 down and lost the game 2-0 by conceding to Felipe Anderson in stoppage time but just briefly going over some of those new signings that haven't quite worked out, that he were trying to replace sort of Raspadori and Scamac. And they've gone from a 4 2 3 1 to a 4 3 3 more often than not this season, apart from the last game. And one of the things that I think has one of the players who I was really excited about, who I spoke about recently, and I won't speak about him too much because of that, is Augustin Alvarez Martinez, who's highly rated. In Uruguay, he arrived for about 12 million euros. He's actually only got a goal and an assist, and he only started his first game as striker even back then. And there just seems to be a bit of, if you look at some of the summer signings, there just seems to be a, a massive lack of confidence from Alessio Dionisi that they actually seem that ready for the first team in terms of the number of minutes you've got, which kind of begs the question what that relationship and input is with DNEC and the board with signings because when it was deserved you did get the impression that he had a lot of autonomy and control over what players the club was bringing in and it seems that while they may have some figures from the recruitment side still there then DNEC certainly doesn't seem to have the same control and some of the players that have been brought in this season or Matias Enrique Players like him also have had their loans um, made permanent from last season. They've not seen many minutes. And then they've also not been held by recent injuries to the likes of Andrea Pinamonti and um, the main player, of course, Berardi, who's missed 11 games this season. But what's the most telling and worrying thing for me is, is that the standout player has been Davide Fratesi, the centre midfielder, quite box-to-box, -box, really good to watch. He's a leading goal scorer with four goals. If he is to leave, as has been rumoured during January, 
I think that's where they could really get sucked into a relegation race because the, some of the Sampdoria have already picked up a win since the winter break. And Sassuolo have proved on recent evidence that maybe they've not been replacing players with sort of the short-term impact, which isn't necessarily the club's model, but in the situation they're in, it might be something that they need. So whether they look to a bit more experience in this transfer window, I'd be quite curious to see. Yeah, I think certainly over the last few years, we've enjoyed watching Sassuolo. We've enjoyed seeing young talents like Skamaka, like Aspidori develop. And yeah, for, for the club to find themselves in the predicament in which they find themselves in, yeah, that's it's disappointing to see. But if nothing else, it gives us a, a tasty relegation battle to rival the tasty title uh, race which is unfolding. I know that uh, Napoli are certainly a little bit clear at the moment, but uh, as I think Lars Sivertson described it in Guardian Football Weekly earlier, uh, it's like a, a zombie horde descending on Napoli. So, yeah, I think Italian football's got a lot going for it by way of competitiveness these days, and to swallow down at the bottom end of the table are certainly adding to that. Okay, I think what we'll do now is we'll take a quick break. We'll come back very shortly to look at a young player in Ligan and a really interesting managerial storyline developing in Ligan. We'll be right back. Prior to the best-named manager in football right now, Will Still taking over as manager of Rams. The side from the northeast of France had picked up just eight points from their opening 10 games, with only goal difference keeping them out of the relegation zone. However, since the 30-year-old Still was given the proverbial keys to the ignition back in October, the six times champions of France have gone 10 games unbeaten in all competitions, notably registering an impressive 3-1 victory over Rennes at the end of 2022. Quite aside from the spectacular turnaround he has instigated at the Stade Auguste Delon, still himself provides us with a decidedly intriguing storyline. Tell us more, Ali. Yeah, it does, Michael, and I feel that there's been quite a lot of commentary on still, so we're just sort of adding to all of that noise around the manager. But, you know, there's there's noise for good reason. And, yeah, as you say, remarkably yet to taste defeat in his first 10 games in charge. He was born to British parents, just for some background, who emigrated to Belgium before he was born. And, yeah, he's definitely taken the, the scenic route, shall we say, to first team management. Uh, I think I read in one article saying that he's earned his stripes. That's a good way to describe it. Now, he has spoken about his, his love of playing football manager as a teenager. And yeah, that played a role in convincing him to switch his focus, if you like, from playing football to coaching it. And, and he studied at Myerskov, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Myerskov, Myerskov College. 15 minutes from they, my house. They are, Michael. See, I can, I can, yeah, I can master all the French pronunciations, but it comes to Middle England and all of a sudden a, a trip up. So anyway, Myerskov College in Preston. Uh, he joined Preston North End at the age of 20, uh, worked with the club's academy players and then returned to Belgium in 2014. Now, I'll come back in a minute to this article he wrote for the coach's voice and some of the things he talked about in that. But that article gave us a good insight into his journey, if you like. And when he was in Belgium, he knocked on several doors and he received knockback after knockback. But he finally managed to get some sort of success uh, when Yannick Ferreira, a young Belgian coach who was in charge at St. Troyden in the Belgian second tier, said, yeah, OK, I'll give you some work. Uh, as a video analyst at first and then eventually uh, Will Steele would be taking training drills, he'd be on the pitch, he'd be working more closely with the players. He then moved to Liers as an assistant manager before becoming manager of the second tier Belgian club at the age of just 24, which is really quite remarkable. He then spent some time at Beershop before joining Rance in 2021 as an assistant to Oscar Garcia then headed back across to San Luis before returning to France. And yeah, as you were saying, he's he's taken over from Oscar Garcia, who was dismissed, uh, I thought, rather slightly harshly. Um, I, th I think Rance in the early season suffered from 
from a lot of uh, poor discipline, shall we say, a lot of red cards. Uh, and, and I think probably Rance would have turned it around. There were enough signs there that Garcia himself, a good manager, I would say, could have turned it around. But anyway, Garcia's loss in that regard has been Steele's gain because he's taken the reins initially as caretaker and then uh, now as, as permanent manager. And he's done an excellent job. And I think what I was saying there about Garcia being sacked rather harshly, I think that also feeds into when we take the context, when we take the circumstances into account, I think that feeds into this idea that Steele has done an excellent job. Over the summer, let's not forget, Michael, that they lost about Faz to Leicester, they lost Hugo Ekatiki to PSG, they lost El Bilal Touré to Almeria, they lost Predra Agraikovic to Mallorca. And those four players had all played really important roles at Rance prior to their departures. I'm not trying to say that they were the spine of the team, but in a sense, they were, to be honest. You've got a goalkeeper there, a highly experienced international goalkeeper. You've got Valt Faz, who I must admit, I'm quite surprised, pleasantly surprised at how well he's done at Leicester for the most part. Hugo Ekatike, really exciting on talent. El Bilal Touré, who maybe at times you could question his attitude, but a lot of that was down to the fact that he quite simply probably didn't want to be at Rance latterly. But a lot of those players played a key role. And so to lose those players, you would, you would naturally expect a team to struggle. And so... When we take that into account, yeah, I think we have to give real credit to what Steele has done in turning around a side that had lost players, that had suffered from ill-discipline and that, yeah, it was uh, there or thereabouts in, in the bottom four, bottom five of the table. And let's not forget, Michael, that uh, you're going to have four teams going down from Liga at the end of the season, whereas normally you would have fewer teams than that, what with the, the shape-up, uh, or shake-up, rather, of French football's top flight. I think it's fair to say, as well as the results, the performances themselves have improved under Steele's management. And most notably, I think we have to point out the fact that under Steele, they're a lot more exciting going forward, probably. Uh, Garcia tended to deploy a 3-5-2, which was more often than not actually a 5-3-2, and you would have Fowler and Balogun and Ito as a sort of strike partnership. Still, however, he's moved to a 4-2-3-1, and he's implemented what has been at times quite an aggressive press. And I think um, for anyone who watched the game against Rennes in particular, when they won 3-1, uh, it was three going on about six or seven. Rennes <laughs> had no idea how to cope with the press, how to cope with, in particular, the likes of Alexis Frups uh, and, and the aforementioned Ito. So I think in that regard, the tactical shift has worked wonders for Steele. And you get the impression that players play for him. I think sometimes with a younger manager, there can maybe be worries that the players won't, respect a manager, particularly if the manager is younger than some of the squad members, as as Steele is. But on the whole, yeah, we've, we've seen the players really buy into what Steele's trying to do, and it's admittedly a very small sample size, but he's definitely heading in the right direction. Now, I spoke earlier about the piece that Will Steele did for Coach's Voice, and just going to rattle off a couple of quite interesting quotes from that. Steele said... At basically any point in my life, if someone had told me I'd be the head coach of a league side at 30, I'd have told them to punch me in the face. I think we probably all echo that sentiment. If if, if someone was to say to me, I'm yeah, 26, if someone was to say to me in four years' time, you'll be managing a league side, I'd, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd have some serious words with them. Uh, another quote as well, um, it still said, I'd never considered that football manager had had an influence on my real life career, but thinking about it now, it definitely did. I got fixated on it as a kid and playing the game probably ignited the fire in me that I have now as a coach on the touchline. I'd been obsessed with it growing up. Me and my brother would play it relentlessly. We weren't allowed a PlayStation, so we played Football Manager on the family computer. Now, I'm not trying to say that Football Manager is more nuanced than FIFA. I'm a lover of FIFA, but I think definitely if someone's grown up playing Football Manager, there's a lot more thought goes into that perhaps than, than would go into FIFA. So yeah, maybe maybe that has played some sort of a role in, in Steele's uh, ultimate career path. Just as an aside, I'm going to wrap up on Steele shortly um, and, and move on to Fowler and Balogun before kind of drawing our analysis of Rance to close. But just as an aside, it will apparently cost Stad Rance €575,000 in fines in total to keep Steele on as a manager, as head coach, because he doesn't hold the UEFA Pro licence yet. So I've, I've taken that actually from the scouted account, Joe. So if, if that's not correct, then I'll, I'll come back to you. But it, it makes sense. I think I read somewhere it was £22,000, €22,000 uh, per game uh, as a fine if, if a head coach, if a manager does not hold the requisite pro licence. So there we are, quite clearly, 
shows the belief that the Hans board have in Sterling. Certainly when you when you read his piece in Coach's Voice, it seems like a lot of uh, decision makers at clubs have really bought into what Steele tries to do with his teams. Now, shifting the focus over to Fowler and Balgan, I don't think we can talk about Rance without mentioning Fowler and Balgan. Uh, I mentioned the shift to a 4-2-3-1 formation and, and I think we do have to point out the fact that Fowler and Balgan has spearheaded that 4-2-3-1 formation really effectively. He of course, scored 75 goals in 103 games between under-18 and under-21 level at Arsenal, and he's notched seven goals in 11 appearances for England under-21. So there is understandably a degree of hype uh, around Balogun, but I think that hype was maybe dampened somewhat when when he went on loan to Middlesbrough, and he, he didn't really do too well there. Um, but despite that underwhelming loan in the northeast of England, Balogun has really shone so far at Rance, and he's already hit double figures for the current league and campaign. He could have actually scored another one against Nice on Sunday, but for a, an excellent save from Kasper Schmeichel. The official league and website describes Balogun as a powerful 5'10 striker with a good ton of pace and the ability to finish with both feet. And the player himself has said that he bases his game. It's quite stereotypical, this answer, quite a... <sighs> Yeah, quite a lazy answer this, but he said he bases his game on that of Edinson Cavani and Robert Lewandowski. His numbers really do speak for themselves, though. He's scored 10 goals, as I was saying, from 9.1 expected goals in 18 league and appearances, and his XG places him in the 93rd percentile compared to his positional peers across Europe's top five leagues. Just looking again at Rance on the whole, after a cup tie this coming weekend, they do travel to the capital to take on PSG. And if Steele can mastermind another positive result there, and PSG, as we know, aren't in the best of places at the moment, then, then I think people will really start to sit up and take even more notice of what he is doing in northeastern France. He admits in that article in the coach's voice that it is his dream to coach West Ham one day. Given how successful a start Steele has made to life at the Stade Auguste Delon, I don't think we can rule out that dream becoming a reality at some point in the future. Joe, do you have anything to add on Steele? Um, well, I was going to mention about the um, the five hundred and seventy five euro, uh, five hundred and seventy five thousand euro fine that he was uh, that Ryan were going to uh, incur, but uh, you you stole that from me. Um, but I do want to say that there was a line which is not it's not not from me, but one of um, one of my my colleagues that scouted Lou, um, who who summarised it with, will still still to complete his UEFA Pro license, but will will still be Stadler head coach, which I think is a nice little nice <laughs> little bit of prose, uh, and also correct. So um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's a great story. I mean anybody who's played football manager, um, you know just. It, it's it's quite literally dreams coming true sort of stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it, it's a great great tale, and and I hope it 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 goes on to to continue, and I hope that that Balogun continues to thrive there as well because you know watching him last season, it was clear, it was very very evident that he was far too good for for you know youth football, um, and needed to be playing at a, a decent level and and away from the spotlight. Um, he's he's done really well, so, um. Yeah, fingers crossed that the the Rance story um, continues in the same vein as it has in the first half of the season. Absolutely, Joe. Uh, just elsewhere, looking at another young player, a player even younger than Paul and Balgan, I would quite like us to talk about a player who has only, well, he's maybe been on the scene for a, a little while, but more over the sort of festive period of football did he really come to the sort of wider attention of followers of French football and I'm talking about Elise or Elise Ben Seguir who is an attacking midfielder or forward playing for Monaco. He was born February 16th 2005 another 2005 player remarkably so he's 17 years of age. Joe what can you tell us about Elise Ben Seguir? Yeah I mean I, I only first came across him uh, last month um in a mid-season friendly against Leeds um, at Ellen Road when Monaco came and, and were really, really ruthless. Um, I, I mean, I had no idea he was 17 um, and had even less idea of how much sort of limited game time and first team, first team experience he'd had at that point because he looked as though 
you know, you you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between him and Alexander Golovin uh, in terms of which was which was older. Um, obviously, having to strategically choose a player who's particularly slight there because Ben Seguier's physical stature does kind of give the game away a little bit. Um, but you know, he's he's at the beginning of this year. Ever since the, the Christmas period, he's he's I think he started Monaco's last three league on games. Um, and uh, that that that. Preceding that, sorry, um, it was he, he scored twice uh, off the bench uh, against Ozair, uh, the first of which being an absolute peach from from outside the area um, after coming on at half time. Um, you know, he's, I mean, there's not a great sample size to work with, to, to be honest. So statistically, it's difficult to, to say, you know, what type of player he's going to be. But, you know, the fact that he, he is starting regularly now, it's not just he was thrown in because there were injuries. Um you know the fact that he started the last three league games um, since that brace. You know, as as the number ten slash sort of supporting forward to to Brilliant Bolo does indicate that there is certainly a future for him in this Monaco team. And we know that Monaco have uh, you know great pedigree when it comes to to deploying young players. Um, but I mean, you know, in terms of stylistically, as is often the case with these French North African players, you know, he's very techy, very comfortable in possession. Um, and again, a bit lightweight at the moment, but he's only seventeen, so. You know, you have to think that in two years' time, if his development continues in in a similar similar way, or you know, even if he's not playing as regularly, because I think we have to be careful about how many minutes seventeen year olds do play, because they're still still growing, still developing, uh, and and will be susceptible to to injuries, which more robust older players won't be. Um, but I think you know we'll definitely be seeing more of him in the second half of the season because he has. It, it's a classic case of having played himself into contention because he was very, very good in, in the friendlies um, that, that Monaco had in, in December. And now he's backed that up with performances in the league. Absolutely, Joe. And I think whenever a player is as young as Ben Seguir does come through at Monaco, there there are comparisons, not in terms of playing style, potentially in terms of playing style, but there are comparisons in terms of trajectory and potential to a certain Kylian Mbappe. He was, of course, nurtured at the Stade Louis Deux. And so people are getting understandably excited. I think, yeah, he's a player who I'm looking forward to seeing develop. As you say, the sample size is so small. So for us to talk at any real length about him would, would be difficult. But definitely, I think he's a player that that the coaching staff seem to trust at Monaco. And he's a player who, in that Monaco team as well, they obviously dismantled Ajaxio. On, on the weekend, they they do play some good stuff. I know it's taken a while to get going on a Philippe Cremont, but, but it is now well in motion, that, that sort of particular uh, Monagas train. And I think going into the second half of the season, Monaco, on the whole, will be a team that we should follow closely. And if Ben Seguir does feature, whether as a starter or as a substitute, yeah, definitely a young player that uh, we should really be keeping an eye out for. Okay, I think we will wrap up the episode there. It's been a highly enjoyable episode for me personally. Hopefully you, the listener, have enjoyed listening to all we've had to say about young players and developing narratives, storylines to watch out for across the four leagues and the second halves of the seasons. And those four leagues, I'll say thank you to Rudy Ballo. He is away viewing a flat right now in Madrid. I'll say thank you to... Michael Jones. Michael, thank you for your time this evening. Yeah, thank you very much. I still just can't take away that we're not even halfway through the season in most leagues, so plenty more action to come. Absolutely, Michael, absolutely. And we'll be covering it every fortnight as we do. Joe Donoghue, thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks very much for having me again. It's always a, always a joy to come on and chat European football with you guys. So, um, yeah, cheers for having me. Excellent, good stuff. And, yeah, thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. Until next time, goodbye.